Welcome to the podcast on Becoming. I'm your host, Dr. Bruce Ellis Benson. You can find On Becoming on Twitter at OnBecomingPod and Instagram at OnBecomingPodcast. As always, you're heartily invited to send questions or comments or suggestions for the podcast to OnBecomingPodcast at gmail.com. If you're enjoying what you're hearing, then I invite you to support the podcast at patreon.com slash onbecomingpodcast. That's patreon.com slash onbecomingpodcast. Your support is very important to keeping the podcast going. Many thanks to those of you who've decided to support us. At this point in the podcast, we've considered the question whether evangelicalism might qualify as a cult. I hope you've noticed that I only posed this question and then provided some information that I thought was somehow relevant. In any absolute sense, it's probably not going to be the case that evangelicalism will be classified as a cult anytime soon. Some listeners have probably decided that evangelicalism is a bit too close to being a cult and thus can no longer find a home there. Others have probably judged that it doesn't really qualify. Of course, we have to recognize that evangelicalism is far too diffuse a movement to characterize with any absolute characteristics. With that in mind, it's probably better to say something like this. Some evangelical churches or denominations or parachurch institutions or schools, etc., lean in the cult-like direction. Pastors in large churches can de facto, that is in actual practice, or de jure, that is in theory, become the ultimate arbiter of what counts as orthodoxy. The reason for introducing the de facto de jure distinction is this. There are churches or educational institutions in which, in practice, the pastor does function as something like a cult leader. When Tim Whitaker was on this podcast, he mentioned the influence of John MacArthur, the pastor of a large church with a significant presence on Christian radio. MacArthur has very strong views, ones that generally imply or explicitly state that other views are wrong. Given MacArthur's large following and the depth of his devotion to him, one might see him as a cult-like figure. I mentioned having taken seminars with Bill Gothard, another person who has very definite views on many topics, and at least in my view qualifies, at the very least, as a quasi-cult leader. That he ran an organization that housed children who were disobedient to their parents, and had strict demands for how husbands, wives, and children were to act, are already worrying signs of his having achieved something like cult leader status. But before I go on to the topic at hand, I need to make an important point. There are cultish aspects of many things. In an earlier episode, I examined the idea put forth by Carolyn Chen in her book titled Work, Pray, Code, subtitled When Work Becomes Religion in Silicon Valley. When I looked at that, we saw that the tech companies operate the way in which many cults operate. In other words, they demand almost complete devotion and do almost everything they can to make sure they wring every penny out of their engineers. You might think, free food, even great free food, childcare, lots of little nooks to stop and take a nap, dry cleaning service, what's not to like? Viewed simply in terms of perks and pay, these jobs are some of the most desirable ones on the planet. 
And yet working for these firms becomes far more than simply having a job. It requires buying into the faith of the tech firm that its products will make life far better, and then submitting to the demands of these companies. Let me requote something that Chen says toward the end of her book uh, on the basis of what she's been arguing in the previous chapters. The problem is that tech companies increasingly operate like the most extreme of religious organizations, cults. They channel the energy of their employees inward and then cut them off from things outside. As I've discussed, tech companies do this by hoarding so much of their employees' time, energy, and passions that they have nothing left for anything else. And they provide for so many of their employees' needs that tech workers can do without the public. That's basically what a cult does. It takes over your life. Before that episode, you probably thought that cults were, by definition, religious in the normal, ordinary, everyday definition of that term. But Chen is a religion scholar who recognizes that the term religion or religious can be applied to any entity, a person, a group of persons, an institution that holds something to be sacred and then organizes life around that sacred thing or the person or God. That's why I argued in another episode that football, soccer if you live in North America, is not like a religion, but is a religion. It has all the hallmarks of religion, the sacred activity of playing football, the devotion of the fans, and their adoration of its stars or football saints. But you can find cultish things almost anywhere. If there isn't a book on how the company Apple became something like a cult, there really should be. From the way in which Steve Jobs would appear in public as something like a god, to the carefully choreographed introduction of the new versions of iPhones, to the reality that owning an Apple product puts you in some kind of elite group, it's almost Gnostic in quality. By the way, I'm typing this on a MacBook Air. Back in about 2000, I made the switch from Windows to a Mac. But I've only seen that switch as a move to a better product, not as a genuflecting toward the Apple God. If you want a different example, you may have noticed that sneakerheads go to great lengths in terms of time and money to obtain their much-coveted sneakers. For the truly devoted, it becomes something like a religion. But again, I'm using the term religion in the sense that the French sociologist Emile Durkheim established. One reason for thinking about religion in this way is that it immediately opens up new possibilities including ones related to established religions, particularly Christianity. In short, there are other ways of viewing Christianity or being a Christian than the ones that are usually advertised. Moreover, while you probably don't need to have any established or institutionalized religion in order to be a moral person, I want to put in a good word for Christianity. But let me try to explain what I mean, since I'm suggesting that you avoid two kinds of blackmail. On the one hand, you have the established apologists for Christianity. There are different varieties of such apologists, though their main goal is pretty consistent. One example is William Lane Craig, who's famous for debating atheists. Having known Bill for many years, it was only comparatively recently that I met one of the atheists that he's debated. It was interesting to hear the atheist side of the debate. I can't remember if I've mentioned this before, but Craig generally finishes with his big finale, which is to state that without God there can be no objective morality. Take that, you wicked atheist. 
And even though evangelical Christians seem to think that the morality of the Bible is objective, which is such a wrong-headed way of putting it, but I'll have to save that for a different episode. Still, even when they think that, they still have to do the exegetical or hermeneutical work of taking a general something, a rule which is more specific or a principle which is more general in nature, and then applying the rule or the principle to a given situation. Because in the end, ethics or morality is always about something concrete, what you should do now, here. Love your neighbor is a great principle, but you have to have a reasonably good idea of what loving any particular neighbor might look like in practice. Hint, loving your neighbor isn't about having good feeling. It's about doing something that demonstrates that love, or better still, just is that love. Years ago, I attended an Episcopal church that had a rector who gave very interesting and thoughtful sermons, but almost never got around to explaining how his general reading of the Bible applied to actual life. There was a lot of love-your-neighbor stuff, but not much working out what it means to love your neighbor in practice, which is where things start to get interesting. But let me give a different example. Virtually all cultures prohibit stealing. But what counts as stealing in any given culture is going to have a great deal to do with how property is viewed. In cultures that consider their entire environment to be property of everyone, what counts as stealing is going to be very different from cultures that have strong conceptions of individual ownership. Moreover, virtually everyone can agree on stealing defined in terms of simple things like shoplifting or breaking and entering. But what about the passage that Tim Whitaker mentioned, James 5? It goes like this. Come now, you rich people, weep and wail for the miseries that are coming to you. Your riches have rotted, and your clothes are mott eaten. Your gold and silver have rusted, and their rust will be evidence against you, and it will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure for the last days. Listen, the wages of the laborers who mowed your field which you have kept back by fraud, cry out, and the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. It's only the last verse here that particularly interests us, but I've included the previous part to make it clear that at least according to James, those who fail to pay their employees or fail to pay them adequately are in effect thieves, and that severe judgment is coming. Now that you've heard that passage from James, you'll likely understand why Tim says that he's never heard a sermon on this. Why? Because it cuts too close. There are too many people who might be offended if you were to point this out. You could preach on the evils of shoplifting, because most people in the church probably don't do that, and so most of them wouldn't be personally implicated. But when stealing gets defined in this broader way, which I think is entirely appropriate, it gets closer to all of us. You've probably noticed that it's hard to avoid buying things like, say, food, or clothing, or shelter. But do you ever think about the products you've bought from a store, and whether they're ones for which the person who harvests them, or who has sown them, have been adequately compensated? Because if what James is saying is correct, then buying products that have been made either by literal slave labor or those who have not been fairly paid for their work, is 
a form of theft. Thus, my point is this. You might have a book that has a bunch of rules for living, but you still have to interpret that book. You have to figure out what those general rules, like not stealing, mean in daily life. And if you're a rich person who fails to compensate your employees adequately, or even if you're not rich but you still try and take advantage of other people, you're likely to ignore the specific passage that gets too close to your actual failings and instead focus on the failings of others. Or to take a different example, most people think that adultery involves some kind of physical deed, even if we might disagree as to exactly what those things might be. But Jesus' take on this is pretty absolute. If you've lusted in your heart, you've already committed adultery. In effect, my response to Bill Craig is simply this. Yes, the Bible gives various rules and broader principles for living. But there's no objective morality because you still have to apply those rules. And there's no such thing as an objective application of moral rules. I think Aristotle is right in saying that the way to make a proper moral decision is to consider all the variables involved. Aristotle suggests that we can find something like a golden mean, but finding such a thing requires a good deal of interpretation of the rules themselves and of the situation. Of course, the very fact that I'm referencing Aristotle, an ancient Greek philosopher who would count as a pagan, suggests that we might perhaps have an objective enough morality simply by doing some reasoning. Most religions, for instance, have a version of the golden rule, which is that you act toward others as you would have them act toward you. I suspect that for probably about 90% of moral decisions, that rule is just about all you need. Would you want someone to do that to you if you were in the same situation? If yes, then go ahead and act accordingly. But if you can't legitimately say yes, then you probably should avoid doing it. It's so basic and simple a principle, but it's still very useful. As we've discussed in previous episodes, it turns out that human beings are hardwired for justice. That means, in effect, that by the age of two, most kids already have a sense of justice, which is to say they view something as fair or unfair. You don't need the Bible for that. The Bible may reinforce your intuitions, but it probably doesn't do any more than that. It may, of course, provide an incentive for doing the right thing in terms of the threat of the judgment day. But I'm more than happy to go out on a limb and say that if your only reason for doing the right thing is because you're afraid of being punished by God, you really aren't much of a moral person. Although Kant means something a little different when he speaks of doing what morality requires, but not because morality requires it, I think someone doing the right thing simply out of fear of punishment would make someone, at best, minimally moral. So yes, you would need the Bible in order to have a sense of morality. Moreover, you could have the Bible and still fail to act morally. There are many people who claim to have the Bible as their guide who act in ways that are quite contrary to what the Bible says. Having pointed out that what Craig says is simply false, I want to draw your attention to the way this claim gets deployed. As I said, toward the end of his presentation, Craig drops what he probably considers a bombshell. No morality without God. But I now realize that this is simply religious or intellectual bullying. Let me explain that by putting it in a wider context. 
I used to teach at a school that had the papers of C.S. Lewis. I can still remember one of my fellow students back when I was a student referring to him as Saint C.S., which I thought rather well captured the status this man had among evangelicals while registering a tinge of skepticism. Lewis is best known for his Narnia books, but evangelicals tend to admire his work dealing with aspects of the Christian faith. However, when I read his book Mere Christianity, my first response was this. If I weren't already a Christian, this wouldn't make me into a believer. There were two reasons for this, though I'll only mention one of those reasons here and leave the other reason for another time. It was as I started to think about the structure of the book that I came to realize one source of my dis-ease. In effect, Lewis had the same approach as Craig, though obviously it would have been Craig getting it from Lewis, bullying people into the kingdom. It was the same logic. Either you could be a Christian, which means you'd have meaning in your life and a proper understanding of right and wrong, etc., etc., or you could be an unbeliever and have a terrible life. To be honest, that's exactly the logic I grew up with in evangelicalism, with the additional caveat that only evangelical Christianity is true Christianity. Yes, I believe that a good number of sermons I've heard over the years are in one form or another bullying. I should add that I spent a number of years in the UK, and I've come to realize that there's a good deal of bullying that goes on in philosophy here too. It usually takes the form in which one position is declared correct and the others are, one by one, shot down. Of course, to accomplish such a feat, you almost always have to make the other positions into caricatures, into something that would seem so wrong-headed or vile that nobody in his or her right mind would accept them. And there, in a nutshell, we have the problem. It's that so many positions are advanced in such a way that those who don't share them are made to seem like idiots, and thus such arguments effectively blackmail into agreeing. The ways in which positions are presented make it seem as if it's an either-or choice. Either you accept Christianity, usually presented in some particularly denominated form, whether evangelical or Roman Catholic or mainline or something else. Or else, it's atheism for you, which means no morality and a life of misery. I hope by now it should be clear that I don't think like this. You could probably be very happy and have a meaningful life as an atheist or as a theist. And you could no doubt also have a very miserable life as an atheist or a theist. Let me provide an example of what I mean in the form of David Bentley Hart's book, Atheist Delusions, The Christian Revolution and Its Fashionable Enemies. You probably can guess that I'm not a great fan of Hart's form of thinking, and even less of his way of writing. I got to about page 80 of his book, The Beauty of the Infinite, and I did what I've never done before. I threw the physical book across the room and hit the wall. What I find offensive is the completely unnecessary churlishness and lack of hermeneutical charity toward other writers. When you disagree with other people, there are so many kinder and more charitable ways of expressing that disagreement. Moreover, if you express your disagreement in a charitable way, 
it's more likely that others will get your point. However, this book is somewhat more balanced, both in its presentation and argument, than the previous one. Just from the title, you can already guess that Hart is taking aim at the so-called new atheists, or as one writer has dubbed them, the undergraduate atheists. And if you've read Hart before, you no doubt know that his writing style tends toward the acerbic. For instance, he describes Christopher Hitchens as having a talent for intellectual caricature that somewhat exceeds his mastery of consecutive logic. And Dan Brown, the author of The Da Vinci Code, as the author of, quote, the most lucrative novel ever written by a borderline illiterate. To be honest, I agree with both of these assessments, though I see no reason to state these assessments in such uncharitable ways. Such a problem is particularly cute when Hart goes on to talk about charity being at the heart of the gospel, which I think is completely correct, but fails to exercise anything remotely like charity toward the new atheists. If charity only means being nice to the people we happen to like, there's not a whole lot to that. What Hart should do is show how and why such books are problematic. In terms of the substance of Hart's argument, I agree with much of it. Yes, the new atheists aren't very good at defending their own positions, and they're worlds apart from the subtle, masterful critique of Christianity that we get from the Scottish philosopher David Hume and then the German philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche. But the real problem with the new atheists is that they're bullies too. That's not Hart's judgment. That's my judgment. And here's where we get to the other hand. Namely, the folks defending atheism are guilty of their own kind of blackmail. In effect, they present the reader with a drastic choice. Either you can be smart and recognize that science is the way to truth, or you can remain in your ignorance and superstition. Again, it's not very hard to see that this either-or choice is presented in such a way that it effectively blackmails the reader. Who wants to be ignorant and superstitious? In his essay titled, What is Enlightenment? Foucault, and the essay, of course, is mirroring the title of Kant's Enlightenment essay, Was ist Aufklärung? What is Enlightenment? Foucault accuses Kant of blackmail. Although Kant encourages us to think for ourselves, Foucault worries that even Kant is giving us a kind of choice that goes something like, you can either accept my conception of rationality or you can remain immature and wallow in your lack of intellectual maturity. Foucault makes the point that we should, and here I'm quoting, refuse everything that might present itself in the form of simplistic and authoritarian alternative. That is such a great statement. And yes, you should always refuse things like that. But here I want to make a slightly different move, which is to focus on a possibility that in Hart's book is opened. In his introduction, he claims, I make no attempt here to convert anyone to anything. And then he goes on to say the following. To be honest, my affection for institutional Christianity as a whole is rarely more than tepid, and there are numerous forms of Christian belief and practice for which I would be hard-pressed to muster a kind word from the depths of my heart. 
and the rejection of which by the atheist or skeptic strikes me as perfectly laudable. In a larger sense, moreover, nothing I argue below, even if all of it is granted, implies that the Christian vision of morality is true. There are two really important things being said in that quotation. First, Hart admits that there is much that passes under the name of Christianity that could and should be rejected by the atheist or the skeptic. He doesn't mention evangelicalism, but I would bet that this is one of the forms of Christianity that Hart would praise the atheist for rejecting. Alas, most of the forms of evangelicalism with which I am acquainted are prime candidates for rejection. Second, Hart recognizes that he's not really arguing that Christianity is necessarily true, but instead is arguing against the atheist claims that A, all religion leads to violence, and B, religion has only brought about bad things for Western civilization. I do not have the space here to provide arguments that support Hart's claims, but I think a careful examination of the evidence for religion being only a source of violence and having only a deleterious effect on humanity would show that such claims just don't hold up. There is no question that wars have been waged by believers of various religions, but there's ample evidence that wars have been waged quite apart from anything obviously religious in nature. In other words, you don't need religion to have violence. There's more than enough violence without it. But Hart's main point is that there's been much good done in the name of Christianity, and no doubt in the name of many other religions. I'm not suggesting that you get out a pen and paper and make up your own list of bad things caused by religion versus bad things caused by atheism or lack of religion. But if you were to do such a study, you'd see that the evidence is, at the very best, mixed. Christianity has brought about a great deal of good, but it's also been the source of much that is bad or evil. However, there's a point that Hart makes with which I agree immensely, namely the point that without Christianity, the world in which we live would be a very different place. I have spoken positively in this episode about Aristotle, but there are some caveats one needs to consider in regard to someone like Aristotle. The most important of these is that Aristotle believes that women are doubtful persons, unlike men, and that he also believes that some people are naturally destined to be slaves. Neither of those are beliefs that most of us could possibly adopt, though alas, evangelicalism's view of women comes all too close to the idea that women are not quite the same as men in terms of importance. Thus, when Hart talks about the Christian revolution, he means the explicit abandonment of notions that birth or blood is essential to determining who we are and what we are worth. As I mentioned in previous episodes, Jesus seems to be suggesting a sense of community or a sense of family that's not based on blood ties. At the heart of his teaching is the belief that all people are equal in terms of worth, and many would add the phrase here before God, though I'm not sure you really need to add that phrase. In the episode titled, You May Be More Christian Than You Think, we considered the book Dominion, subtitled How the Christian Revolutionary Made the World. Its author, Tom Holland, does a masterful job of showing 
just how much Christianity shaped the Western world. In other words, if you want to get into specifics of how Christianity was both a force for good and a force for evil, Holland's book will give you a lot of information to work with. Holland is well known for his work on antiquity. After mentioning some of the particularly horrific examples of the rather common ancient views of the, on the value of human life, this is his response. It was not just the extremes of callousness that unsettled me, but the complete lack of sense that the poor or the weak might have the slightest intrinsic value. Why did I find that disturbing? Because in my morals and ethics, I was not a Spartan or a Roman at all. That my belief in God had faded over the course of my teenage years did not mean that I had ceased to be a Christian. It's this last point that particularly interests me here. For Holland is pointing out that Western values have been so shaped by Christianity that they would be impossible to hold apart from the Christian legacy. One of the through lines of his book is that even when Christianity and other religions get relegated to the so-called private sphere, as if there really is such a thing, Christian values get repackaged into secular values. As he puts it, and here I'm quoting, the West over the duration of its global hegemony had become skilled in the art of repackaging Christian concepts for non-Christian audiences. In other words, to get people across the world, including millions who are not Christians, to accept and even endorse the idea that all human beings have equal value, such a view needed to be put into more, shall we say, secular terms. If you get a chance, I heartily recommend that you read Holland's chapter titled Woke at the end of his book Dominion. It is as good an exposition of the centrality of Christian values to Western culture as I have ever read. Here's one way he gets at this point, and now I'm quoting. That human beings have rights, that they are born equal, that they are owed sustenance and shelter and refuge from persecution, these were never self-evident truths. If you know anything about the founding documents of the United States, that reference to self-evident truths is to the line in the Declaration of Independence. Here's that original line. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Holland's point is that apart from a Christian upbringing or having Christianity as the default moral position, such views would never be self-evident. Moreover, whatever your view of what is often called wokeness might be, you cannot understand its existence apart from the social message of Christianity. Here's one example he gives. I'm quoting. To install transgender toilets might indeed seem an affront to the Lord God who had created male and female. But to refuse kindness to the persecuted was to offend against the most fundamental teachings of Christ. In other words, both sides, the anti-woke and the woke, were drawing on the same legacy of Christianity. You're welcome to enter the debate and declare which of these sides gets closer to Christianity or has more basis in Jesus' teachings. Or take this example. The human body was not an object 
not a commodity to be used by the rich and the powerful as and when they pleased. Two thousand years of Christian sexual morality had resulted in men as well as women widely taking this for granted. Had it not, then the Me Too movement would have had no force. Even when Christianity is rightly condemned for its implicit and explicit patriarchy, such a condemnation could only come from within Christianity itself. Only Christianity has the intellectual resources to make such a position seem obvious. Or to put this in even more starker terms, Holland points out that, and here I'm quoting, evangelicals and progressives were both recognizably bred of the same matrix. The Christian position that monogamous fidelity is the ideal for marriage was taken up by those who favored gay marriage. The response rejecting gay marriage is based on the few but prominent biblical texts that condemn same-sex relations. I want to conclude this episode by mentioning something that has become extremely evident to me when I taught evangelical students. For reasons that are probably apparent to you if you've listened to many episodes of this podcast, many of my evangelical students who had doubts or questions became philosophy majors. I've made the point before that I don't think that philosophy is directly the source of these questions, though of course any kind of training that causes one to think more clearly is almost assuredly going to result in asking more questions. I would love to say that everyone is interested in knowing the truth, but in my own experience, it seems to be the case that many people, including students, prefer to remain ignorant about things that might require changes in how they live. I've mentioned before that when I would ask students if it was some particular doctrine or Christian belief that was a stumbling block, I almost never got the answer that it was. Instead, students would talk about their unease with the entire package. They could recognize that accepting evangelicalism required accepting a lot of stuff that didn't seem all that consistent, and that much of it was difficult to make sense of. While I spent many hours, hundreds at the very least, more likely thousands of hours, working with students individually on questions of faith and doubt, I also gave two chapel addresses on the subject of doubt. Indeed, I happened to be at a local breakfast spot talking to the rector of my church about my own doubts when our server stopped to thank me for the chapel address that I'd given on doubt. It was a very interesting moment. But I've come to realize that doubt is simply a part of belief. Let me put that point in the following terms. Nietzsche claims that we all have various drives or instincts. In other words, we have multiple things that motivate us. And that is because we are not united selves. Contemporary psychology and neuroscience have affirmed that Nietzsche is correct. We might say that what we have are multiple selves which means that one of those selves can seem very certain, another one of those selves might have a few questions, and another one of those selves might think that a given belief is really unlikely to be true. If you want a different example, consider the adolescent child who says to a parent, I hate you, when that parent requires a timeout or some other form of punishment. 
In such a case, it may well be that one of those selves or voices does actively hate the parent at that moment. But in most cases, there are other selves or other parts of that very person's self that contradict that feeling. Yes, it's entirely case that we can have feelings that can point us in two different, even contradictory directions. I could say this is part of what it means to be human and leave it at that. But I want instead to say something much more positive. Precisely this ability to stand back and question even things we say we believe is a really important part of being human in the sense that it gives us something like an agency or freedom. Many of us, and I'm including you, dear listener, are able to think about things in ways that are nuanced and subtle. That variability, however, means that we are often able to see both the positive and the negative aspects in things we might believe or pursue. You might think this is some kind of substantial drawback, but it's exactly the other way around. For if you are able to weigh both the positive and negative aspects of believing or doing something, then you have a much better idea of whether it's worth believing or doing. And it's in this sense that I'm claiming to still be a Christian. While I sometimes am reluctant to identify as a Christian simply because the term, like evangelicalism, carries so much baggage, when it comes down to the things that are most important to me, and thus the things that tie me to others, they are all basically Christian in nature. I'm on the side of truth and justice, which is the side on which Jesus stands. Perhaps you'll find that the furthest you can go in the direction of being a Christian is to agree with such ideas as A, all people are equal, or B, that human bodies should not be seen as mere commodities. But let's go back to that statement of Holland, in which he says, that my belief in God had faded over the course of my teenage years did not mean that I had ceased to be Christian. Note that Holland doesn't say that having written this book, he now has his original faith back. Instead, it means that he now sees that being Christian isn't neatly definable as holding a set of doctrines or consistent church attendance or regular prayer and Bible reading. I think it's very important to see this point. One of the reasons why my students were filled with doubts is that they were, in effect, given the following choice. You can either accept the evangelical version of Christianity as the one true version, or you can abandon it completely. Those are your only choices. You will probably be surprised that when I would mention that students might well find that some other form of Christianity could work for them better, it was almost always a novel idea. And that's not because the students were stupid and they couldn't think for themselves. It's that when you've been given the message over and over that it's either evangelicalism or godless eternity, it's hard to buck the insistence that evangelicalism is the right and only true form of Christianity. Yet one should should resist any and all false dichotomies and instead see them for what they are, intellectual or religious bullying. Although Hart makes it clear that there are many versions of Christianity that he doesn't endorse, just to be clear, he identifies as Eastern Orthodox, 
He sneers at anyone who might suggest that the early Gospels, in other words, the ones that didn't make it into the canon, might have anything to teach us. I'm very reluctant to make such a judgment. You can always say something like, well, the Holy Spirit saw to it that these other Gospels, the Gospel of Thomas or Judas or whatever, weren't really inspired by God, and that's why they didn't get into the canon. But if you do even a modicum of reading on the formation of the canon, you will almost assuredly have to think a little bit more carefully about such a conclusion. But the most important point here is the simplest. When I was growing up evangelical, I was told that there were certain beliefs you had to have in order to make it into heaven. Probably the greatest problem with such an idea is that it's very hard to come up with an actual list of things that someone must actually believe in order to get to heaven. To be honest, I don't think that the primary message of Jesus is about heaven or hell or anything to do with a life to come. I think his message is directed at us today, right here. Perhaps you believe that the main message of Jesus is that his death is for the forgiveness of sins. But I don't think that A, this really is Jesus' message, and B, if it is, it's less important than how we live here and now. You might think I'm wrong about this, and indeed, perhaps I am wrong. But if I'm wrong, then why exactly were those people who followed Jesus when he was still alive commended by him for their faith? You see, at that point, of course, he hadn't died. So there wasn't any possibility of believing that his death was salvific or something like that. And yet, people were flocking to hear him preach. Moreover, Jesus commended many of those who heard his words for their belief. As I've argued at length in a previous episode, that belief is a personal belief. As Wilfred Cantwell Smith has explained in his book titled Belief, the words used in the New Testament for this belief have to do with a kind of trust. When people came to Jesus and said that they believed, they couldn't, of course, have been believing in all the doctrines that came along tens or hundreds or even thousands of years later. Instead, they were saying that they saw Jesus as the way, the way forward, the way to abundant life. Something along the lines of, Jesus seems like the right guy to follow. A book that I've co-edited with two other friends, one of them being Aaron Simmons, who was just on the podcast, is scheduled to appear shortly. It's titled Philosophies of Liturgy, subtitled Explorations of Embodied Religious Practice. My chapter in that volume is titled Religion as a Way of Life on Being a Believer. My overall thesis is remarkably simple, that following Jesus is much more about how you live your life than determining whether the Calvinists or the Arminians are right, or what it could possibly mean to say that the Bible is inerrant, or whether it's really all that important that Jesus was born of a virgin. Just to be clear, I fully expect that my chapter will be condemned by some as insufficiently Christian. But that's really what this episode is about. What does it mean to be Christian? When we say that certain people aren't really Christians, are we talking about how they live their lives or whether they have a proper understanding of the metaphysics of transubstantiation? I fully understand that you may well desire to say, but you don't have to choose one or the other, you can have both. 
And that's a great answer. But it avoids the pointed thrust of the question. Jesus tells the story of two brothers, both of whom were asked by their father to help him in the vineyard. One initially says no, but then he changes his mind and goes to help after all. The other readily says yes, but then he fails to show up. After telling the story, Jesus then asks, which of the two did the will of his father? They said, the first. I'm still quoting from the scripture. Jesus said to them, truly I tell you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes are going into the kingdom of God ahead of you. Jesus' point, as he goes on to make clear, is that the tax collectors and prostitutes, exactly the people you'd think wouldn't make it into the kingdom of God, are the ones who've believed, and their belief has taken on the form of a changed life. Although I've spent much of my adult life discussing theological questions, I think following Jesus really comes down to only one thing, a changed life. I've mentioned before that in that chapter on the great judgment, Jesus makes it clear that the ones who will be counted among the sheep are the ones who have fed the hungry, clothed the naked, and visited those in prison. There isn't any mention of proper doctrine or having the right theological views. Given that we've reached the end of this episode, I can't list the other parables of Jesus in which it becomes clear that action rather than abstract belief is what Jesus thinks makes one a member of the kingdom of God. But this is what I mean when I say that I'm still a Christian. I'm still just as interested in living out the life-giving way of life that Jesus presents, even though I've become much less interested in abstract theological doctrines. They're probably worth discussing, at least for people who have the time and the inclination. But I don't think they really are about what Christianity is about. I'm Dr. Bruce Ellis Benson, and you've been listening to the podcast Unbecoming. I hope you join us next week.